Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This episode is brought to you by Defining Moments Canada's Bryce at 100. Defining Moments Canada has produced a fascinating new podcast about the doctor who fought to expose the atrocious conditions in residential schools over 100 years ago. And this is cool. Along with each episode, there are accompanying learning guides to help you continue the conversation with discussion questions and further readings. Give it a listen. Visit definingmomentscanada.ca to learn more about Bryce at 100 and listen to We Need to Talk About Bryce wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Matea Roach, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and collapsing economic systems. On the show today, can you afford eggs? Because they are getting awfully expensive. Our three top grocers testified at the House of Commons recently, but unfortunately we learned very little. And we've just seen the biggest bank failure in the United States since the 2008 financial crisis. What could that mean for Canada and for you? Joining me this week, Murad Hamadi, business reporter from The Logic. Great time to be a business reporter, huh? So much fun. Next, he has the hardest working publicist in the Canadian podcast business, host of Commons, Arshi Mann. Welcome back. Thank you for having me again. And a new voice on the show, Megan Simpson, senior editor for BetaKit. Welcome to the backbench. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. All right, let's get into it. Grocery chain profits um, are not the reason for food inflation. Our revenues have gone up. Expenses have gone up. Margins have not gone up. They've been stable f- for a long time, and food margins have actually declined. Then you go to packaging, tin up 53%, pulp up 45%. I'm not going to keep going on. Freight, fuel, labor. We have families that are struggling to buy food for their kids in this country, in a G7 country. And they look at you and they see you making record profits. How could you justify that? when families are struggling to put food on the table for their kids. Last week, three very controversial people in Canada right now testified before the House of Commons Agriculture Committee as part of its study on food inflation. And it got heated. Record profits more than you've ever made. How much profit is too much profit? You're making more money than you've ever made. How much profit is too much profit? We're a big company and the numbers are very large. Michael Medline, president of Empire, Galen Weston, president of Loblaws, and Eric Lafleche, president of Metro, have been the face of Canada's food inflation debate for some time now. Their testimonies come as Canadians are experiencing the highest grocery inflation rates in four decades, all while profits in the grocery sector have reached all-time highs. 
NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, he's been very critical of grocers and what he calls greedflation since the start of the pandemic. But these grocery CEOs are actually claiming that retail prices have not risen faster than costs and instead have said that they're losing money on core commodities like milk, butter, and oil. The grocery CEOs say that record profits are as a result of the efficiency of their business and the strength of categories like cosmetics that aren't, you know, those essential grocery goods. However, it's hard to know if this is actually true or not because the grocers are not being transparent about their specific food profit margins. Galen Weston claims that releasing these numbers would be commercially sensitive and ask Canadians to instead trust what they say. Hmm. What can't be denied is that global food inflation is at an all-time high, supply chains are all over the place, the war in Ukraine is putting pressure on the supply of core commodities such as wheat, and climate change is also affecting the fruit and vegetable market. This really isn't just a Canadian phenomenon, but let's talk about what is going on with food prices here. So... Megan, what was your initial reaction after hearing the testimonies from these grocery CEOs and, you know, hearing the lines of questioning that were being brought forward by people like Jigmeet Singh? My initial reaction is whether these, you know, grocery stores are inflating prices or not, Canadians are still feeling it, right? And there's only so many of these grocery stores. There is a monopoly. And so there's going to be less competition no matter what. And I think I don't know, maybe it's a little controversial, but regardless of actually what is happening, Canadians are still feeling it. So I think we need answers and we need to understand more of what's going on here. How many times have I spoken to people I know where they're they're complaining about the, the price of groceries, right? Every time you go into a grocery store, it seems like it's a little bit higher. So regardless of what's happening here, I think consumers need and want more clarity on what's going on. What was really interesting to me was just how rare it is that you see CEOs of any of the major companies in Canada testifying in Parliament in this way, being held accountable, being asked questions. This is something we were much more likely to see in the U.S. At the end of the day, they were fairly evasive. They don't have to provide their numbers, whether publicly or to the Competition Bureau, so they don't. They were a little bit disingenuous about the nature of the grocery business as well. So Galen Weston, for instance, kept having this line, on a $25 basket of goods, only $1 of that is profit that goes to the grocery chain, to the grocer. And while that might be reflective of reality, it obscures a number of really important facts. For one, a lot of these companies, especially the Loblaw Group, are not just grocers. They are distributors, they're manufacturers, they own a number of different businesses up and down the supply chain, and they're extracting profit at all of those levels. The other thing is that supermarkets have been a low margin, high volume business since their inception. So it is true, it is it is universally true that any supermarket is going to be taking um, a fairly small chunk of the profit. But the stuff that happens at the margins still matters quite a bit, both towards their bottom lines and towards how it affects consumers. You know, they were relying on the ignorance of both of the Canadian public, of the parliamentary press gallery, and especially of the parliamentarians themselves about how the grocery business works in order to just cruise through. And I think they kind of did. I mean, this whole thing is a bit of a circus, right? That's the point of getting CEOs up in front of a House of Commons committee so that Jagmeet Singh can shout at them. That study, so the study of food price inflation that the Agriculture Committee has been doing, It's heard from 37 witnesses in total. It's not just sort of consumers that are feeling the 
pinch right now, grocers, including the three that were up there and Walmart, um, which is the other big player in Canadian grocery, have been renegotiating. Broadly, the sector has been seeing a lot of renegotiation across the people that do uh, delivery between suppliers and grocery stores and also the suppliers themselves, right? So if you if you are a company whose goods are sold at a grocery chain, uh, there's all this renegotiation going on to try to get you to lower your prices from the grocery side. Uh, and then the question is, does that benefit translate to the consumer or does it just translate to the CEOs? But the nature of a hearing where you get CEOs up in front of you Having seen enough of them, it's very rare that you get new information. It is much more an opportunity for MPs to state their ideological positions, ask some showy questions, and for the CEOs to play defense. There is this bigger question I think that's interesting about like what Gillen Weston thinks the public thinks of him. I don't know about you, but when a white man in a sweater and glasses comes on TV to tell me his food is delicious, I have some questions. Uh, inherently. <laughs> what does showing up and arguing that the public doesn't understand what a loss leader is, which, you know, is the basis of the grocery business, what does that do for your public image if you're up there being like, listen, it's not as bad as you think? I wonder all the time, specifically about the Loblaws commercials that you mentioned, Murad, because it's like, are there people who really respond to seeing Galen Weston present them with various President's Choice products? Like, do they find him to be a comforting presence on their television? Like, I really don't know. One thing that I did find interesting and that I did kind of want to know more about is like, my assumption is that it would not be good for, you know, Loblaws, Metro, et cetera, to release actual information about the profit margin that they're earning on, you know, various grocery products and essentials. Because I really do believe that like, if people were to see the numbers, it would be possible for somebody to present those numbers in a way that made people uh, quite upset at the margins that grocers are earning on things that we all have to buy just to like survive and eat our regular groceries every day. The sort of rejoinder of, well, this is commercially sensitive and so we can't release that information. Is there any actual truth to that? Or is it just sort of the excuse that's being presented as like, this is why we can't give you this information? It's a total obfuscation um, because what people are asking for isn't even the you know specific, say, profit margins on one essential or another on like, say, I don't know, toilet paper or cucumbers, right? What they're asking for is for these companies to simply break out their different business lines. So like how much profit do you make in the grocery business? Because obviously Loblaws, for instance, also owns Shoppers Drug Mart. And because of that, they're able to continually say that, well, it's because of our sales and pharmaceuticals and on, you know, skin cleanser and and other things like that, that we're making up all of this profit that you can clearly see in our quarterly earnings. And, you know, it's just standard accounting practice. In fact, it's it's recommended that they break these out. I think shareholders would appreciate that as well. So I don't actually think the ask is too much. And then there's the other question of what they should be reporting to the Competition Bureau, because if you were watching these hearings, that was a question that came up over and over again. Will you actually even break these earnings out confidentially to the competition commissioner because they are engaging in a market study of the grocery industry right now? And once again, they basically didn't give a clear answer. It sounded like it was clear, but if you 
actually go through what they say, they're kind of like, well, maybe if, if everyone else does it, but like there's enough, you know, room for them to basically bow out of that. So they're not even willing to necessarily provide that information confidentially to the government, let alone break it out publicly. And I don't think it would make a huge difference for them competitively. So they should just do it. It's silly. And if it is just that people are buying fancier shampoos and are spending more on healthcare, then this would help them out, right? This would help clear up some of the narrative around this and really get them out of everyone's, you know, bullseye. It seems to me like this situation is just like increasingly untenable for so many Canadian consumers, right, that are having to spend increasing percentages of their monthly take-home pay on just like basic grocery goods. What tools actually are in the government's toolbox to either force these companies to be more transparent in some way, which maybe leads them to lowering prices on their own, or to actually like cap prices? What do you guys see as the way out of this? Price controls generally don't work. So just as an example, uh, I grew up in India. In India, every grocery product is stamped with a manufacturer's recommended price, which is effectively a price ceiling. So it's not the case like here where you go to a grocery store and everything on the shelf is priced according to the grocer, according to the day. There, essentially, if you go to three different chain grocery stores, most products will be the same price. There'll be some discounts and sales, but the basic cap is the same and inflation runs routinely at levels that we find ridiculous here, just because of basic supply and demand. Also, the federal government attempting to introduce price caps would be like possibly one of the biggest political fights in our recent history. It would just be an incredible lift. As always, uh, I have no hope about anything. I'm more sympathetic to price controls, especially at times of rapid change. But I, I think, as Murad was saying, it's it's utterly politically unfeasible at the very least. It's, it's really not something that I think any of the parties in the Canadian Parliament would even consider, um, including the NDP. So I don't think there's much use in kind of talking about it. I do think where the government can can get involved is, you know, right now they're looking at changes to the Competition Act, because as if you've listened to, to Commons over the last few months, you probably know that we have incredibly weak competition laws in Canada. And so that is certainly one area that the government can make a difference by empowering the Competition Bureau, by actually trying to make sure industries don't get consolidated, especially in sectors that are important to Canadians like food, grocery retail. The kinds of things that you can do right now, it's it's basically around there. Like there are huge macroeconomic trends and huge global supply issues that have led us to where we are now. I don't think there's too much that the government can do to relieve the situation for Canadians in the short term outside of providing income assistance and things like that. What they need to be thinking about is how to build more sustainable supply chains in the longer term, how to resist the monopolization of a bunch of different parts of those supply chains as well, and potentially on breaking up companies that control too much of those chains as well. I mean, that's something that's totally anathema in Canada. You know, when was the last time a Canadian company was even threatened with with a breakup? But that's, I think, the kinds of things that we should be looking at. But first come the legal changes that need to be made. I'm going to get a little pessimistic and say, is that going to happen? And when? <laughs> and how is that going to affect 
consumers who are feeling the crunch right now, right? So I think Archie is really correct in everything he's kind of laid out there, but I don't know. I'm not feeling good. I don't think any of us are feeling good these days. (laughs) (laughs) Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Now it's time for Private Members Bills, the part of the show where we let our panelists set the agenda for once. Without further ado, I'd like to call on the Honourable Member from Davenport to introduce a private member's bill. Honourable Speaker, as you know, I'm sitting here in my riding in Davenport, which happens to sit in the city of Toronto, where we are about to embark on a mayoral election. I won't go into the sordid details of what led us to this point, but a number of candidates are jumping forward. But there is a sense of worry among some of the people that I know that it doesn't matter who is going to get elected because the provincial government is just going to get the city to do whatever it wants. It'll maybe vacate the office of mayor and and put in a badger as our mayor who gets to decide everything, cut our council further in half. You know, municipalities in Ontario are creatures of the province. So I would like to propose a bill. I think it's time for Toronto to secede from the (laughs) province of Ontario to set up our own provincial government and to finally, finally be on an equal footing with those who try to bully us so. A bold proposal that I'm sure will be taken well (laughs) by everyone in the rest of Ontario. (laughs) All right. I'd now like to call on the Honourable Member from Ottawa Vanier. Honourable Speaker, I am tired of the false dawn of spring. Every year, every year it gets me. And so I just like everyone collectively. In fact, I think we should pass a law to ensure that everyone collectively is not allowed to talk about how the weather is getting better until the 15th of March. Because until the 15th of March, every time it's false hope. And while as a journalist, I'm generally in favor of free speech, this speech is damaging because it makes me hope. Here, here. I completely agree. You know, I can't even talk about it. I'm so upset about the weather. I went to California and I thought the weather was going to be good. And it has literally rained every day but one of the days that I've been here. Last but certainly not least, let's hear from the honorable member from Eglinton Lawrence. Honorable Speaker, I'd like to propose something to stop politicians from making bad environmental decisions. I propose that if you pass any laws that ruin an environment, you pass laws where, you know, a pipeline's hurting a community, right? There's bad environmental aspects there. You actually have to go and live in the middle of those environments. I think if you're living in that and you're experiencing that, you're going to make very different decisions. So my proposal, I'll leave it short and sweet, is that we make it so that politicians, the the very ones making these laws, have to live in the middle of the mess that they create. 
A bold proposal, although the first example of this that comes to mind is like, oh no, now Doug Ford has to go live in one of the houses that's going to be built on Greenbelt <laughs> land, which I think oh, no. he probably would actually be fine with. You know what? I missed that. You're right. Mm, we might have to tweak it a little bit. We've got to figure out some kind of alternate punishment uh, in that case. But I think when it comes to more obvious, like pollution-related environmental disasters, maybe uh, maybe we got something cooking. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens' mission is to empower people to take ownership of their health with a simple daily habit. They make it so easy to get all the nutrients you need to start the day off right. I've tried to take supplements before, but when you're taking multiple different pills and capsules and things, it's hard to keep track of everything. With AG1, it's just one thing that you need to do, which makes it super easy to integrate into my routine. It saves me time and makes me feel good about sticking to a habit. It's just one scoop of their AG1 powder in the morning. My brother has also gotten into AG1, and he loves stealing it from me. Anytime before he's heading out to the gym, as it helps him make sure that he's covering all his nutritional bases and gives him the energy he needs for a good workout. If you're looking for a simpler and cost-effective supplement routine, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com slash backbench. That's athleticgreens.com slash backbench. Check it out. This episode is brought to you by Defining Moments Canada's Bryce at 100 project. Check out this new educational podcast that looks into the fascinating history of Dr. Peter Henderson Bryce. Bryce was the Canadian public health official who fought to expose the atrocious conditions in residential schools over 100 years ago. It's called We Need to Talk About Bryce, Courageous Conversations with Bobby Henry and Guests. They get into Dr. Bryce's pamphlet, The Story of a National Crime, and the historical and contemporary issues and themes that stem from it. These include truth before reconciliation, equity in health and education, indigenous sovereignty, the sacred importance of children and family, and hope and futurity. The podcast goes one step further by providing learning guides for each episode with discussion questions and further reading. It's great for bringing these conversations into classrooms, so for teachers out there, you should take a look. Have a listen. Visit definingmomentscanada.ca to learn more about Bryce at 100 and listen to We Need to Talk About Bryce wherever you get your podcasts. Silicon Valley banks collapse set off a panic. Uh, many called it the backbone of Silicon Valley. It lost nearly $2 billion selling assets. SVB didn't have a banking license in Canada, but it played a role in lending to tech startups with big ideas. Silicon Valley Bank has officially filed for bankruptcy protection. This is the biggest bank failure in the United States since the 2008 financial crisis, and it's actually the second largest bank failure in U.S. history altogether. And in Canada, people are worried about the aftermath of this collapse. Canada's top banking regulator is temporarily taking the reins of SVB's Canadian assets. Globally, people are in panic mode in response to this collapse, but Finance Minister Christian Freeland issued a statement assuring Canadians that Canada's well-regulated banking system is sound and resilient. But often, what happens in the U.S. is felt here in Canada, even if it's not always immediately clear how. The Silicon Valley Bank officially opened up a branch in Canada in 2019, and they have an extremely close relationship with the Canadian tech startup community. From an individual Canadian perspective, at least for me, it seems like the level of this impact is fairly low, but it has sparked greater questions about the tech sector and its relationship with the banking industry. 
is this a warning of things to come or simply one bad set of circumstances that's going to remain relatively localized? So I think a lot of people, when they are reading coverage about banks, uh, if it's framed in a way that is like insidery or isn't like the hugest collapse in history, like a recession that's very easy for people to understand in a direct way uh, how it's going to affect them, people's brains just kind of start doing that staticky thing like when you used to turn a TV to a channel that didn't exist and it's just like brr. So, Murad, can you maybe explain for those folks who don't really get banks, what caused the Silicon Valley bank collapse? Let's say Archie is starting a bank. So we're going to get him his uh, Monopoly Man top hat and monocle. This is a joke about his current season of Commons. Monopoly is very good. Um, Archie basically does two things as a bank. He takes deposits and he makes loans. I would do three things. I'd also buy a top hat. Okay, yes. You should not use those deposits to buy the top hat, though. That would be fraud. Anyway, you take deposits, you make loans. Okay, pretty simple. And you use those deposits to fund the loans. Silicon Valley Bank took deposits, primarily, let's simplify it, from tech companies and tech investors. And they made loans primarily to tech companies. Again, we're simplifying pretty significantly, but that's where we're at. Now, after the first shock of the pandemic and before sort of the last, I don't know, call it six to nine months, tech was in a bit of a go-go-go period. There was a ton of money flowing into tech companies, and they were putting that money in Silicon Valley Bank. Silicon Valley Bank needed to make margin on those deposits. They needed to make money from holding those deposits, so they loaned some of them out. There weren't enough people to take all the money that they wanted to loan out, so they had to do something else with it to earn interest. And what they did was they bought long-term government bonds, which are basically promises from the government to pay you back the money that you give them at some future date. They're generally pretty secure. The problem is that when interest rates rise, as we've seen, and this is a thing that is being done to curb inflation, which is kind of our second topic for today, when interest rates rise, those bonds get less valuable. So Silicon Valley Bank now has a bunch of call it paper, that it's holding that is worth less today than it was yesterday. And at the same time, there are people who want money out of their deposits so they can spend it so they can run their companies. Basically, all of this comes to a head two weeks ago Wednesday when Silicon Valley Bank comes out and says, we sold a bunch of these things at a loss. We lost a little bit of money, a little bit of money in the grand scheme of things, about $1.8 to $2 billion. We need to raise money from our investors to make up that gap. And Every seemingly half the VCs in Silicon Valley are like, okay, all of our portfolio companies, the companies that we've given money to, Silicon Valley Bank is looking shaky, move your money somewhere else, and that sparks a bank run. One VC who I spoke to and told me this is a good excuse for some investors to go around pretending that they're smart about finance and do some panic. And do some panic uh, was basically the first three days of this thing. Uh, then the regulator gets involved. It turns out, by the way, in the end, the money is all secure. People are going to get the money because it's all been insured. The FDIC stepped in. But basically, just to round that up, you take deposits, you make loans, you try not to make stupid bets on long-term bonds and assume that interest rates will forever be low because it turns out inflation is high. And also, uh, you try not to do panic. Do panic bad. That's, I think, a very good crash course in like what causes a bank to fail. And I want to maybe know a little bit more about what specific dynamics are going on with this bank, right? Because I think the amount of 
venture capital involvement, the amount of startup involvement with the Silicon Valley Bank specifically is quite unique and distinguishes it as a bank from something like one of, say, our big five Canadian banks where like a regular person would just bank with them. So what drew... I guess, like, I don't know, this sounds like a redundant question because it's like, it's the Silicon Valley Bank. Of course, that's where the startups are going to bank. But what specific features of this bank maybe made it appealing as a place for tech startups to seek loans that drew venture capitalists to it? And specifically, I'm wondering, like, when it comes to Canadian tech companies, why might they opt to work with the Silicon Valley Bank as opposed to a Canadian financial institution? It's important to note that the Canadian side of this couldn't take deposits. So Silicon Valley Bank Canada could make loans, they couldn't take deposits because of the way that they were licensed. But basically, Silicon Valley Bank was understood to be very startup friendly. So the terms that they offered for the loans that they made were generally quite favorable. In the US, they came often with a condition which was, and you will bank with us, you'll hold your deposits with us. So it's a lock-in system. And that's how Silicon Valley funds the loans that it makes. They had good customer service, a bank with good customer service. Can you believe that? Uh, they kept in touch with their clients. You know, they, uh, they often had secondary services where if you are a startup founder and you're worth quite a lot on paper because your startup is worth quite a lot, but you're completely illiquid, it's pretty hard to get a mortgage. And Silicon Valley Bank would give you a mortgage. So it's a close-knit ecosystem of people who basically banked with this bank, uh, got money from this bank, and had a, a fair amount of good feeling towards this bank. I, too, would have a good feeling towards a bank that actually had good customer service and didn't make me, like, jump through a million hoops to get a meeting with my financial advisor. Murad pointed out that Silicon Valley Bank in Canada wasn't actually taking deposits. It was sort of just extending loans. And I think that that puts it maybe in an interesting position in Canada with regards to how it competed within the banking sector, right? So it's an American competitor that people might turn to for certain things, but then not for others because they're not extending the same amount of services to Canadians as say, your TDs, your BMOs, your Scotiabanks. Megan, how could the concentration of the banking sector in Canada either, like, put Canadian banks at risk or aid them after the collapse? Like, basically, is what has happened with the Silicon Valley banks something that could conceivably happen with our banks? Like, how do the dynamics of our banking sector affect the likelihood of something like this affecting your, like, average Canadian investor, somebody who holds uh, deposits in a bank? I think the competition aspect here is really interesting because SVB Canada only did loans here, right? So they didn't do the same thing as the big banks. It's really hard to get a banking license in Canada. It's not easy for SVB Canada to do the exact same thing that the big five banks do here in Canada. But what they did do is they created a little bit more competition in this loan space called venture debt that it's kind of specific to innovation tech sector. And all these small businesses will go to SVB Canada and get these loans. And one thing of the you know people I'm speaking to, concerns about the, the competition, the rates going up. Now, there's only the big five banks in Canada doing these kind of venture debt loans. Okay, what does that mean for the small businesses that they were working with? Good customer service bank, right? If they're being a little bit friendly, giving some good terms, coming into the Canadian market, and now this player is going to be out of the Canadian market. What does that mean for these small businesses and the access to these loans that they can get, right? What are the big five banks going to be giving them now? I think it's important to understand some of the big differences between the American and the Canadian banking systems. The possibility of something like this happening here. 
it's pretty inconceivable. In America, you have these entire categories of banks that are just missing from the Canadian landscape. So Silicon Valley Bank, for instance, is basically what we would consider a, a mid-sized bank for the U.S. It was a pretty big mid-sized bank. This is the second biggest bank failure ever in the U.S., but it doesn't even come close to the kind of size of the Wells Fargo's or the, the J.P. Morgan Chase's of the world. And a lot of people in the United States and a lot of companies bank at these regional kind of banks. There is literally thousands of them. This is just something you don't see here. In Canada, it's about 80% of the Canadian market is dominated by the big five banks. And then you do have smaller banks in there, you, especially credit unions that are around and other types of, of small financial institutions. But the large banks, TD Bank, CIBC, Scotiabank, BMO, and Royal Bank are so utterly dominant that it's hard to even kind of compare the differences. Now, if you're talking about bank failures, you know, bank failures do occasionally happen in Canada, but it is quite, quite rare. Even if you go back to the Great Depression, not a single bank in Canada failed during the Great Depression. If you go back to the financial crisis, not a single bank in Canada failed. We have an entirely kind of like, yeah, different landscape here, and we've never once had what you could consider a wholesale banking crisis in Canada. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that we have these very old, very large institutions that are fat, happy, generally risk averse. It doesn't mean that they're always that way. CIBC took major losses by betting on U.S. mortgage-backed securities in the run-up to the financial crisis, but it wasn't enough to take them down. And of course, they still have the fairly explicit support of the Canadian government. They are backstopped. I think the biggest effect this is going to have on Canadians is just in the macroeconomic picture. So right now, both the Bank of Canada and the Federal Reserve have been hiking interest rates in an effort to increase unemployment so that more people get laid off so that inflationary pressures can be eased. You know, they want to slow economic growth. And inadvertently, they're going to end up doing it because a lot of regional banks that are responsible for a huge amount of economic activity in the U.S. are now going to have to be a little bit more conservative. They're not going to be lending as easily. They're going to have to hold on to some of their reserves. And so you're going to inevitably see a slowdown. It does seem like the contagion might be limited for the most part to kind of banks that were exposed to the tech industry. We have a risk of a hard landing economically. And that is probably what's going to affect Canada the most, because obviously if the U.S. economy starts going down, ours is going to go down. But again, remember, that was the point of interest rates hikes. Central bankers talk about it using kind of like fancy terms, but the, the point is to slow economic growth and to get people laid off from their jobs. And this is going to do that just in a kind of roundabout way. What do we see the impact being on like tech startups, on their ability to access like capital, funding, whatever? Is there anything that we should be on the lookout for in the tech sector, whether in the US or Canada, possible consequences that you guys see emanating as a result of this bank failure? I would say the long-term concerns are two. One, one I already brought up in, in being like the rates that the banks are going to be handing out for these loans, right? That's a concern. But the other concern is that the Silicon Valley bank 
issue has exacerbated something that was already going on. Rod hinted at this a little bit earlier, and I won't get too inside baseball because everyone's head's going to hurt if I start explaining venture capital at all, but I won't do it. <laughs> but what I can say is, you know, when COVID started for a couple of years there, big tech boom, right? I think we've all heard about that. There was a lot of money going into it, all kinds of stuff. Uh, and then over the past year or so, that's changed. Whereas investors were essentially throwing money at companies for a little while there, that's changed. Investors aren't really doing that. And these venture capital investors also have their own investors, where they get money from, that are also being affected. They're not handing out money as much to the venture capital firms that then hand the money to the startups. So if we're tracking that, there's been an issue where there's a little bit less funding, it's harder to get it, and what SVB's collapse has done is create concerns that that's going to be even more the case. Will they have access to capital long term? What will that look like? And how do we kind of make sure that there's kind of a backstop there? I think that's why you saw there was a bunch of Canadian tech innovation hubs that put out a letter last week to the federal government asking for some support. Now, a little bit of their terminology of the very doom and gloom stuff of that's happening with SVB might be a little bit out there, but they're not wrong that the long-term effects are this kind of access to capital. And how do these startups, how do these small businesses make sure that they're able to continue to access that moving forward? I think a lot of people have said, you know, this isn't necessarily a warning of like more uh, bank failures to come, that it is somewhat an omen of certain developments that are going to happen in the financial sector that would have happened like with or without this crash. I guess what I want to know then is, are there any lessons for Canada, either in terms of like lessons that our, you know, central bank should be taking away from this, lessons that consumers should be taking away from this, or I guess lessons that like people within the big five banks should be taking away? So Credit Suisse got bought over the weekend by UBS. These are both Swiss banks. The reason I bring this up is like, it's not the same contagion, but it's in the same universe. And so what you have is a bank whose stock price is tanking. Now, Credit Suisse has been in trouble for a long time. There have been several attempted turnarounds. It hasn't worked. But they got bought for like pennies on the dollar of what their loan book is worth, what their actual stock price was. And it happened really quickly. Like the deal came together very quickly over the weekend. And that speed part of it, I think, is the thing that everyone's remarking on this time, right? Like, I don't think anyone in the tech venture or banking world has slept much in the last nine days. I certainly haven't. One reason for that is just how quickly the, all of this came together. So, you know, you were saying we we heard the finance minister come out on Friday and, and basically give this reassuring statement where we're sort of sure about the stability of our banking system. In this world, that 8, 16, 24 hours in the world of social media, like the bank doesn't just close Friday and open Monday. Worlds of stuff happen in between. And all of that has accelerated so fast. All of this to say the timelines of banking regulation, which need to be methodical and thoughtful, are also not necessarily well set up for a sort of social media bank run world. And that's a thing that maybe the next time around, it won't line up all so well and nothing will go wrong. Everyone was working the weekend, but communication turned out to be the key to all of this. And fast communication and sort of reassuring communication, there aren't many solutions to a bank run, but that is one of the only ones. On the Thursday that the bank run at Silicon Valley Bank happened, $40 billion moved out of that bank. Compare that to the, the biggest bank failure in the U.S. before this, Washington Mutual, in which I think it was about $16 billion left over a 10-day period. This stuff happens faster, and 
banking regulators need to be just as fast as what's going on inside the things that they're regulating. Yeah, one of my takeaways that kind of hurts my head a little bit, SVB was like a regional bank, right? It wasn't very diversified. It was specific to a certain sector, whereas Canada's big five banks are very diversified. So, you know, what's happened there can't really happen in Canada simply because there is this like oligopoly, monopoly situation happening. So the thing that's really hurting my head is like, is having this system in Canada plus regulations actually help you know, when a lot of the times we're actually looking at the U.S. and saying, oh, you know, Canada's banking system has some issues being a monopoly. So the thing that's like how much the, the monopoly hurts or also helps the Canadian banking ecosystem. I don't have the answers to that, but that's kind of one takeaway for me. All right, let's adjourn. That's been The Backbench. If my audio sounded different today, it's because I am recording from a hotel on the road in not sunny California. We'll talk again in two weeks when I'll be back in the studio emptying the Candleland office fridge of all its cherry-flavored sparkling water. If you've been following along with what happens in Ottawa, let us know what you've been watching closely, what you'd like to hear us discuss, and what esoteric Canadian politics content you want us to break down. Send us your questions, your concerns, and your rants. You can email us at backbench at candleland.com, and we're also on Twitter at BackbenchCast. I'm Matea Roach, and you can find me on Twitter at Matea Roach. Murad, where can people find you? My long words are at thelogic.co, and short words and stupid jokes are on Twitter at M-U-R-A-D-H-E-M. Arshi, where can people find you? You can listen to me rant about similar topics um, at the Commons Podcast and the Canada Land Network, or you can also find me on Twitter at Arshi Man. And Megan, where can people find you? So you can see me getting granular on venture capital and just about Canadian tech generally on betakit.com, but you can also find me on Twitter at Meg E. Simpson. Isadora Duncan was a pioneer in modern contemporary dance of the early 20th century. Duncan died tragically at the age of 50 when her silk scarf got caught in the wheel of a car she was traveling in. I learned this because inexplicably this fact is printed on the inside of my hotel bathroom door, so you can really ponder that while you're doing your business. This episode was produced by Aviva Lassard and Noor Azriye with additional production by Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Annette Ajofo. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. If you value this podcast, support us. You'll get premium access to all our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on merch, tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis by keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Thank you for listening. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.